0: A warm welcome to the Herdy School. Herdy School?
1: The Herdy School. The Herdy School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow.
2: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herdy School in Berlin.
3: All right, welcome, and thank you for coming on this spooky night to talk about, I guess, sometimes a rather mysterious question, which is about financing. Uh, in terms of how things run. Where is the money? Where is it going? Where is it headed? That's often in the shadows on this very, I guess, shadowy night in terms of how this runs. This is something, however, that uh, Masood Ahmed is going to be addressing. He has a distinguished career dealing with some of these issues. He's currently president of the Center for Global Development. He joined the center almost two years ago. I don't know if you plan a party or something in January of 2019, but you're almost there. Uh, He spent time before, specifically at the IMF. He served eight years as Director of the Middle East and Central Asia Department, and he also served as the IMF's Director of External Affairs and Deputy Director of the Policy Development and Review Department. So if I think of financing, and I think especially at the international level, I often think of the fund and what it is that the fund is doing. Before that, he also served with the UK Government's Department for International Development, or DFID, So he has a perspective that comes from a country level, not just from an international level, and not to miss any specific international institution, but he also worked at the World Bank from 1979 to 2000. Now he was born and raised in Pakistan, but he went to one of our partner schools, to the London School of Economics, uh, and has spent also a fair amount of time in London. So he will talk about financing the SDGs. But before you come up, I also want to introduce uh, Inga Kao, who's been a great friend of the Hardy School, been based here, taught here, and done a lot of great things. We had the opportunity to collaborate, in fact, on one of the governance reports that dealt with some of the financing issues and dealt with what was happening in global governance. She served as the first director of the Human Development Report Office of the UNDP between 1989 and 1995. Later, she was director of the UNDP's Office of Development Studies. She has a very recent book uh, that I should plug called Global Public Goods. She has other books, however, in terms of of how this runs, um, providing global public goods, managing globalization, as well as the new public finance responding to global challenges. So I anticipate a bit uh, thinking again about some of these global challenges and how to finance them, which is the perfect person to come uh, after Masood Ahmed has given his presentation. Uh, they, she will talk about some things and comment on the presentation, and then they will open up the floor for questions from you. So please think about what sorts of questions you would like to ask. Without further ado, I'm delighted to have you, uh, Masood, here at the Herdi School. And uh, we look forward to hearing what you have to say.
4: Thank you very much, Mark. And thank you, Inge, for uh, being the person who brought this together. Thank you all for coming in the evening. It's good to say, I'm sorry I'm not dressed for Halloween, but I guess for some of you, this is probably what Halloween dress looks like. <laughs> if you think of your nightmare of what you might have to dress like later, you're thinking, hmm, this is probably close. Okay, so i don't going to take a long time talking. I really think it's been nicer to have a conversation because then we can actually engage on the issues that are on your mind, but I thought it would nevertheless be useful to spend a a few minutes sort of laying out the scene of financing for the SDGs and, and kind of, I guess, the, you know, you know there's a nice picture that characterizes them all. And, and so, why is this a good topic now? Why, why should we talk about financing the SDGs now? Um, well, you remember, you know, the 2015, we agree on the SDGs, and it's a big change from the original concept for the last. Ten years prior to that had been what was driving a lot of global discussion on development, which were the Millennium Development Goals. And and for me, the big reason why this was a big uh, plus compared to the Millennium Development Goals was two things. One, that I think it made people recognize that development was much broader and more multifaceted than we had thought of in the way we had set out the Millennium Development Goals. And you know some people criticize the SDGs for actually being very broad, saying you know look at all these, and then you go into each of these that are indicators, and you can start churning out the numbers about you know there's a hundred plus indicators, and but actually I don't I think that's sort of missing the point in a way because it's really just to give a sense that there are these different dimensions you have to think about when you think about societal change, <laughs> and the second thing that was important was that. It made it recognize that it wasn 't just about a set of poor countries, which was what the Millennium Development Goals was about. This is really a universal concept. You know, all countries, all societies, all communities are struggling with many of these issues so you know you could put these up, and if I were to say to you, you know what are the issues that you think matter in in Germany, well, you know yesterday, I was at a conference in Hamburg and Spend the morning talking about industry, innovation, and infrastructure. They were talking about the three I's, and, and you know, the afternoon talking about inequality. So you, So in some ways, these issues are everywhere, wherever you are. They manifest themselves differently. Now, the other side of 2015 was not just an agreement on the goals, but a discussion about how to get there and financing. And if you remember, there was a sort of uh, separate financing for development conference uh, took place about the same time. And the financing for development conference essentially came up with this very nice sounding uh, soundbite which was sort of billions to trillions. And the whole concept of billions to trillions, it sounds good, you know, was that basically we were going to mobilize Billions of dollars ourselves, which we do already, so not a whole lot new commitment there. But this, we would deploy the billions in ways that would bring in trillions of additional dollars that were currently not being deployed for developmental purposes. So that's the sort of basic narrative. How are we going to finance all this? Well, there's all this money, and you know, everybody can quote some number of. And I lose track of numbers that are larger than a few trillion. But you know, there are some trillions of dollars sitting in zero interest accounts, and there are institutional investors who you know can't earn any money and pension funds who desperately need better returns than we can now offer in a low interest rate environment. There are all these great projects in developing countries. and so what we need to do is just to move that, make the connection, these trillions of dollars that are sitting doing nothing, We'll get into financing the very worthwhile investments that we need. And so we'll have the money we need to achieve all of these SDGs. And so so that was sort of the big narrative. And there was sort of side narrative, which was that uh, it's about self-reliance. You know? So USAID, for example, as you know, has got this whole narrative now that for them, development is about the journey to self-reliance. Now, I'm not sure that. But that that sort of explains everything in life. But but as a a concept, the idea was that developing countries themselves should and would finance a much larger share of the future needs by raising taxes. And so the other big sort of three-letter word that came out and which has become very popular now is DRM. Everybody talks about DRM. DRM being domestic resource mobilization, which is a fancy way of saying you raise taxes. So basically, taxes from the countries themselves and money from the private sector combined together would largely finance this much more ambitious agenda, which we all agree is you know, where we want the world to be. So, and then I'm not, I don't want to ignore it, but along the side there was this discussion around in Paris. The Paris Agreement happens about the same time. So it's really a unique moment in, in, in recent history when the world comes together on all these goals and agenda. And, and I think it's fantastic that we have that. Um, but now, here we are, sort of four years later, and it's not quite obvious that it's happening. right? So actually, when you look at the results, you find is not quite panning out as we had thought. So now it's not, a, it was still early enough that I think now is a good time to have a conversation to say, if it's not happening in the way we thought, what should we do? And, and it's important to face that and have that conversation because it'd been, there's no point having this conversation in 2030, you know, to sort of look back and say, and start doing this finger pointing of why it didn't happen because it doesn't help anyone. So now is the time to have that conversation, and of course, you know, financing. Just to, this slide is simply there to say, I am perfectly conscious of the fact that financing is only one dimension of the constraints that we have to overcome to to achieve the the SDGs or to achieve the objectives set out in the Paris agenda. There's institutional issues, there's legal issues, there's political problems, there's conflict. There's, so, and we can have a discussion about all of them. But but I do think it's worth taking, at least for today, what I'd like to do is have a conversation about the one dimension, which is financing. So just a few more graphs, kind of just putting up some pictures. So first, just to say a word about costing. So one industry that has developed over the last four years is the industry of costing the SDGs. And many people, Uh, have done work, uh, varying degrees of rigor, um, essentially doing, attempting to cost out SDGs at the global level, at the level of groups of countries, at the level of each country, at the level of each SDG. If you go onto the website, you'll find studies. And and the IMF also has become a player in this. and has started producing these costing exercises. And I, you know, I'm a staff member, so I have some context to And I went to them, and I said to them, I actually think this is counterproductive. And I'll tell you why I think it's counterproductive. Because, first of all, I'm not sure how you can cost out individual SDGs. Because the whole nature of SDGs is that you have to move on them in a holistic way to achieve them. And you can't say, you know, this is my SDG, and I'm basically going to sort of go out and cost it and deliver it, I don't care about the other SDGs because, you know, development doesn't quite work that way. Unfortunately, the costing exercises have generated exactly that. So every SDG now has an advocate group, which takes its number and says, I need X hundreds of billions to achieve my SDG, and therefore, you know, you need to carve out this amount and, and fund it. And of course, that's kind of missing a bit the point that countries have to sort of come together and think about these holistically. And the second thing is that while the IMF will say to you, as they did to me, that all they're doing is costing, they're not saying this is feasible, the fact that they cost it is used by those who are taking that one SDG and, and moving forward to say, even the IMF, which, you know, we generally like to cast in the role of the sort of villain who enters from left stage and puts a damper on all good dreams because, you know, that's their role in life. But we say even the IMF has said that this is the cost, and therefore, you know, we must now sort of single-mindedly pursue it. So we all these costings. And they've said you need another half a trillion dollars a year in, in, in the poor countries alone, to be able to finance the SDGs, so this is kind of IMF estimate that you roughly need half a trillion dollars a year, uh, per year, in eight poor countries to do it, okay. Now, what's happening actually? So this is a chart which essentially shows what's, what has been our success. This is kind of like one of those charts they give you when you get your eyes tested, you know, how far down can you go and which line can you read? And, and, so ignore them all. I mean you have a copy of the chart in your website you'll have the text so you can look at it. But the bottom line here is that the MDBs and the DFIs kind of lend about forty billion and in terms in trying to mobilize private money. And for that, so far, they've been able to mobilize directly and indirectly sixty billion. So the ratio of what they put in and what comes out turns out to be one to one and a half, rather than the one to nine, which is what we assumed in 2015. And you know, we have long conversations as to why that is. I'm not blaming anybody for this. It's just a. It turns out to be a much harder exercise. It wasn't simply the case that there was just the need to make the connection. You know the. Private sector works with a different set of objectives and constraints, and its willingness to take risk is very low. The MDBs themselves actually are not designed to be mobilizers of money. Their staff is not incentivized to be mobilizers of money. They get rewarded for putting projects on their own books, not making up projects and passing them on to others. So even though their bosses tell them that's your role, by the time it filters down, they find seven reasons why this particular project is a very good idea, and we'll do it in the next one, the one you're going to do. But for my project, I want to do it my way. you know. So so there is that culture change. It also turns out that in the poorest countries, because that's really where the big issues are. I mean, the, I should have said earlier that if you look at the middle income countries, the the upper middle income countries, they can generally mobilize the money. The SDG financing problem is not going to be one for them. But for the poorer countries, particularly in Africa, um, the business environment is quite difficult in some cases. The infrastructure is not there. So you can't just get the private sector to come in and do the projects because you are simply making the financing available. And so the ratio actually for poor countries is not one to one and a half, it's 1 to point 4 so for every $1 of official money instead of mobilizing 9 you're actually mobilizing 40 cents so this isn't as it is going to go from billions to trillions you know you should work on it we should continue to make the effort we make all the changes we need to make but realistically we're going to mobilize billions to billions you know so few tens of billions of dollars a year, a few hundreds of billions over a few years, but nowhere near the 500 billion a year that we're uh, talking about. And so the other issue is taxes, remember? They were going to go up and and finance it. So this is what taxes have been doing in poor countries. And you know, taxes in poor countries uh, generally hover in the low teens. Taxes here generally hover in the, you know, more like the high 30s, low 40s. In middle-income countries, they're in the 20s. In poorer countries, they're generally in the teens. And the assumption was that you would get them up by five percentage points of GDP, and that would generate large amounts of money. Uh, because remember, the bulk of developing development is actually financed by countries themselves. Even now, the bulk of development is actually financed by countries themselves. Aid flows are small share. foreign financing is slightly larger, but still small share. Mostly people finance are all development. And of course, if this goes up by five percentage points, that'd be nice. You know that would help to take us closer. But in reality, again, it turns out. Not so. I actually, you know, as Mark was saying, I grew up in Pakistan and I still follow the Pakistani economy. And Pakistan is sort of a wonderful place as an example of a country that has decided as a society not to pay taxes. <laughs> so it's just a societal contract. You see, basically, about, it's a country of 200 million people. Right? How many people do you think in Pakistan pay income tax? Out of 200 million, you know. Now I won't embarrass you, but by because you, no matter what number you come up with, it'll be way too high. Uh, <laughs> the actual answer is 700,000. Less than a million people, out of 200 million, are registered personal taxpayers. If you go to Pakistan, which I encourage you to do, uh, you know you will find that considerably more than a million people have a living standard that you might think would enable them to contribute some nominal amount every year uh, towards payment of income tax. But this works well. The World Bank and others have spent, I think, probably a few high tens of millions of dollars over the last 30 years in providing technical assistance to the tax office, studies, political economy studies, public opinion surveys, to try and encourage the Pakistanis to pay more tax. But you know, if they don't want to pay more tax and the government doesn't really want to collect it, there's no amount of effort by all of us here that is going to uh, generate more taxes. Even in countries where people want to pay more taxes, actually, it's very hard to raise them that quickly because the infrastructure doesn't exist. And then there is one more problem. If you look at the structure of taxes in poor countries, because very few people pay income tax or corporate tax, and Pakistan is not the only country in the world like that, the way countries manage their finances is by collecting taxes on consumption, mostly, and imports. So they tax everything that comes in, and they tax what you buy. And since, so that means indirect taxes. And you know, what's the most interesting thing about, or most important thing about indirect taxes compared to direct taxes, is that indirect taxes tend to be more regressive. So they actually fall more on the poor, because the rich don't spend such a large part of their income. The poorer you are, the more you spend of your income. You know, this is a sort of basic factor of life. And as a result, because the, the structure relies heavily on taxes that are heavily focused on the poorer part, in many developing countries, the poorer ones, the current structure of taxation is quite regressive. So even if you allow, and this is the work, some work done by Nora Lustig, who's done some very interesting work on this. Uh, Nora Lustig has been doing this work country by country. And what she does is that she takes for each country the the incidence of taxes. So which income group does the tax fall on? And then she looks at government spending. Who benefits from government spending? Because to get a balanced picture. And what this shows is that all those countries, which are on the left-hand side, um, In all those countries, the number of people below the poverty line increases after governments have collected taxes and given benefits to the poor. So what does that tell you? It tells you that in all those countries, poor people are paying more into the system than they are getting back from it. So if you were... And this actually is a very nice exercise that exists for many, many countries. So you know, I encourage you to, to look at Nora Lustig's uh, work. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a commitment to equity handbook that actually uh, does all of this analysis. And she, can, and she presents it in different ways. This is one way. And so for example, one proposal that we came up with a year ago was to say that each country should make a commitment that at least the poorest people in that country the ones that are in the, say, let's say the bottom 20% in that country would not be net payers into the fiscal system. Seems to me kind of, you know, that these is already most people in these countries are poor in some and, and the poorest of these countries shouldn't be the ones who are paying net into a system from which the benefits go largely to people who are better off compared to them. And that's why if you rush now to say, let's raise the Tax base from these countries by five percentage points of GDP, without changing the tax system, you're really saying, let's go, move that number, even further out. Let's get many more people, to fall below the poverty line, in these countries because we are rushing, to raise taxes from these. So it's not so, you know, it sounded like a great idea at the time, and and DRM still is abstract enough that you don't need to think about all this, but. The reality is that this is what it looks like. So, so where does this bring you back? Actually, you know, old-fashioned in this sense, it brings you back to the thing that we thought was the, the financing of yesterday. So remember, we used to basically have a ODA and aid financing. That's largely what was used to finance development. And the whole point of this was that ODA was sort of yesterday's financing and old-fashioned. And we were going to go towards private sector funding development and, and domestic financing, and you know, kind of ODA was not really worth spending too much time about. But for all these reasons, I think ODA remains very important. And we're, and, and you know, and actually, one of the reasons, I mean, this is sort of like maybe not fair, but I feel that one of the reasons why everyone so quickly jumped onto. This billions to trillion narrative and the DRM story is because it then made us not have to talk about what we were going to do as rich countries to contribute to achieving these more ambitious goals. Because, you know, we could point to all these other people who were going to take care of it. You know, the private sector and and the countries themselves. So we didn't have to make any. Nobody actually made a commitment in 2015 about what we were going to do from our own official financing to achieve this much more ambitious agenda. We made a commitment on Paris that the rich countries would provide $100 a year in in support of climate finance adaptation and mitigation. But that was a sort of separate conversation at that time. So you know, odor flows have kind of gone up. Um, big chunk of the increase has actually been absorbed in financing um, in-country costs of refugees. So you know, if you, we we can now, so spend roughly 10% of odor is now spent on financing the costs of refugees in rich countries, because they sort of changed the rules to make that uh, possible. Um, And and then humanitarian goes up because of all the crises and conflicts. But if you look at ODA disbursements to poor countries, this money actually going to poor countries, um, hasn't really changed all that much. And the other thing is, you know, ODA flows like 150 billion, roughly. And a third of that actually goes to poor countries. So my question is, should we be rethinking really You know, if, if order flows are that important? Shouldn't we be focusing on how to use them better? You know, shouldn't we be thinking about where we spend them, how we spend them, how effectively we spend them? And in a way, what's kind of um, slightly disturbing is that the whole discussion about effectiveness of aid, which was very big 10 years ago, has now more or less sort of like disappeared. At the, you know We do a lot of events at the Centre for Global Development and we did a panel uh, which I wanted to do and I, I called it Does Anybody Care About Aid Effectiveness Anymore? That was the title of the panel. And, and we got some, you know, we got uh, the, somebody from the, the head of the UK Development Ministry, we got uh, people from uh, the Minister of Finance of Sudan. So I got some people from different perspectives. You know, I got somebody from uh, Sweden. So it so, you was know, a conversation. They are all very big on aid effectiveness before. And I have to tell you, the first time I proposed the title, I said, let's let's do something on aid effectiveness at the annual meeting. And, you know, most of my colleagues, like, oh, God, what a boring topic. Really, do you want to do that? Because their view was this, like, so yesterday. Discussion about aid effectiveness. But my view, my personal view, is actually it's so tomorrow because you know it's only going to take us a few more years before we come back to realizing that unless we use this money well, you know all this kind of hype about the other stuff isn't going to solve the problem. So we've got 50 billion here, another 100 billion sitting being used in other places of ODA. Why are we giving still 20 billion dollars of ODA every year to upper middle incomes or rich countries? You know, why why are we doing that? Is there any reason for it? So, and I think it's, so all this stuff has sort of gone off the agenda over the last few years because people were too busy on the other conversation. But I think it's time to bring this conversation back to that. And then the last thing I would say, is um, another reason, sorry, last but one. Another reason why you need to focus on this is Because the poor countries, while we have sort of been focusing on talking to them mostly about how we 're going to mobilize private money, haven 't been idle because some lenders have been quite happily wandering over and offering them money and there are two groups in particular. one is financial institutions from China have been very big, so China is lending them from 10 billion to 100 billion a year, you know big huge amounts of money in Africa and um, China's now a larger, holds more debt from developing countries than all the members of the Paris Club combine. right? Paris Club is like all the traditional lenders, OECD lenders. They're on one side, and China's got more debt. And the second group that's been busy is actually our own beloved financial institutions. So banks, commodity companies... You know, Glencore is the largest creditor of one of the countries. So lots of collateral, because, you know, we sort of thought all this stuff was going to be private finance. And the net result is that today, this is again another chart from the IMF, half the countries, low-income countries, either are already in a debt distress or are at severe risk of having a debt problem i tell you that one of the things I did in my earlier life was to actually come up with what was then a debt initiative called HIPIC, a heavily indebted poor countries initiative. And you know, it was a very painful three years to try and get everybody to agree on writing off the debt of poor countries because we had to agree it was unsustainable. And this is building up the same problem but without the same solution. And why not the same solution? Because last time... The debt was owed mostly to multilateral institutions, like the World Bank, regional banks, IMF, and to Paris Club creditors. And Paris Club creditors also happened to be the main shareholders of the multilateral institutions, so they were willing to collectively sort out a problem. This time, if the debt is owed to China and to Glencore companies, there's no way that the multilateral institutions are going to come in and pick up the tap for this. So, this is going to be much harder to resolve when the problems arise because the debt is owed to people who are not part of the system that has been set up to resolve debt problems. So, another reason why we need to think about what are the terms and conditions on which countries are borrowing. And so, then the last thing you know, you have all these multilateral financial institutions, World Bank, regional development banks development finance institutions here. You know, you have uh, national institutions. You have European institutions. And I think these institutions play a big role in not just providing money, but in providing the supporting stuff that makes those projects work better. They don't always work well. I mean, i spent my life in them, so I can tell you that there are plenty of examples you can find where they didn't do a good job. they do a job that nobody else is clearly willing to do, and they can do it better in some places, but by and large, they're the most efficient way that we have of leveraging money. So you give a dollar into the capital, for example, of the World Bank, that gives you $5 of extra lending, which then working with others can you know give you a, a reasonable project. So I think we, as, as you, I mean, you are the representatives of the shareholders of these companies, of these country, uh, uh, of these institutions. And as shareholders, we have not exercised the kind of responsible ownership of these organizations. And I think we need to take more ownership of them and get them to deliver their full potential, which means encouraging them to do the right things, checking them when they go off track, uh, holding their management accountable, uh, but also it means giving them the, the scale to be able to deliver at the size at which the world's problems, that our ambitions are. So we can't have ambitions which we do in a separate room, which is called sort of SDGs in Paris. Then we go into another room, and then we say, let's you know, kind of now have a different conversation about what's feasible on financing, and the two conversations lead to very different outcomes. So I guess my only point in this whole presentation is to say honesty and realism is very important when you have conversations, because these are not just theoretical conversations we are having amongst ourselves. This is about trying to have a collective global response to major problems that we face and, and which we want to leave a better world in 10 years. So in 2030, you know, it would be a terrible shame if we are, because we didn't face up to these issues in time, we end up with falling short on the expectations of people. And, and and finally, I think I would say also that countries, the, the developing countries themselves, have to now recognize that you have to make trade-offs and have, have priority setting, and sometimes you have to say no to some projects and yes to others, and, and the ones you do with limited money have to be ones that pay off. And a lot of problem with some of those Chinese finance projects is not just that their debt problem is there, but that the project doesn't make sense. You know, so it, it's, it's one thing if you actually say, well, I've got a financing problem, and maybe it's your problem because it's your money, you know, you have to find a way. But if the project doesn't deliver for me either, then it's, it's really a, a lose-lose. So I think we have to really recognize that this is a serious, long-term collective responsibility, and we have to move in ways that that have honest, more honest, and 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 more uh, critical conversations amongst ourselves about it. So that's kind of what I wanted to say to you. And now I'm very happy to have an opportunity to engage uh, with Inge and with all of you on, on issues that we want to talk about. And remember, all this I've been talking about has really been about countries. And I think what I haven't mentioned in this presentation, but which I hope we'll talk about when we have a chance, with, is a lot of global problems today don't lend themselves to being resolved at the country level. They go across countries, pandemics. You know, the, the WHO budget for pandemic flu is somewhat less than the annual salary of the Michigan State football coach. Right? So that's something, you know, kind of wrong, right? I mean, the Michigan State football coach has a bigger salary than the whole WHO budget for dealing with pandemic flu. Why are we letting that happen? So I think that's the, I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had about our complete inability to fund and organize global public goods adequately. But I hope we get into that another. So thank you very much so far.
0: First of all, good evening to all of you once again, and Masoud, thank you very much for this fascinating, stimulating talk, which gave us a lot food for thought, I think, and um, uh, I always like the idea that whatever we discuss here can be translated into MA thesis papers or PhD thesis papers. You you see, we have to do a lot of new thinking, but let me start with my comment on your fascinating talk, I think you put a lot of emphasis on the MDBs calling on shareholders to think afresh, but in my view, it's precisely the shareholder group who is, uh, all of them, responsible for the current problems we are facing you know, because uh, when I read the communique case of the last um, uh, bank fund meeting... And you I you
1: one of the very few people who does.
0: Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm sort of uh, crazy in this respect. I also read all G20 documents. Uh, so I don't see uh, your call reflected in these uh, papers. So we have a problem that we actually have to think um, and look at your centre at the Center for Global Development, can we start rethinking there? Because we have to uh, do the rethinking outside of the current system to put pressure with new thoughts uh, on the uh, um, the current workings and structure and functioning uh, of the system. And you rightly pointed out that there is a problem with the current business model of the uh, MDBs, They are very much country-focused still, and um, their main instrument is a sovereign loan. So countries have to request the loan. And you can see, you look through all the country programs, which I also do, and you see that everybody does a little bit about uh, the environment, a little bit about uh, the agriculture, a little bit about communicable disease control, but up to a point that it is in the national interest. And then comes the question, the atmosphere wants more than we all collectively in the North and the South are prepared out of self-interest to do for these uh, global public goods and uh, the global challenges. So how can we, what sort of uh, policy approaches do we need in order to close the financing gap that remains after we all have done our little bit about the global challenges and i would uh, say for in order to incentivize countries or the private sector to do more about these challenges you need cash incentives have to a large extent be paid in cash you know you don't go to the bakery and say give me take a loan from him and give me your uh, little rolls for free no you yeah? You, you pay cash for what you buy uh, in shops so we uh, we need cash and when it comes to cash and order order is being depleted you mentioned already the refugee payments that we make in the in the host countries out of order you look at things that we do in Afghanistan. First, the bombs come and destroy the wells. Then we uh, use ODA and other things to rebuild a little bit what we destroyed uh, for various military geopolitical uh, interests. Then there is the funny thing in the MDBs especially, that they make a commitment to how much money they will lend for climate change mitigation or adaptation projects. So is this not a new way of conditionality, a new form of conditionality? When a country probably uh, needs something completely different, we say, no, no, I mean, first of all, let's talk about climate change uh, uh, mitigation. Uh, So there too, we, we face a scarcity of funding. And where, where do you think could the big push for change come from, from the Center for Global Development? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think the big push for change is going to come from you, from people like you. I'll tell you why. You know, you look at what's happened. Um, the thing that really encourages me is you look at what's happened on climate. So in the last two years, I think, I've seen people who really didn't think about climate as part of their daily work life, whether they're finance ministers, the central bank governors, talking about climate change and, and getting, you know, coming up with like getting people to fix these targets and saying you must do X on climate. And wh- why do they do that? You know, suddenly they read the literature. It's not as if this science hasn't been around for a while, right? I think what they're responding to is political pressure from what is actually mostly, but not only, mostly young people in their countries and their communities. So the number of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people marching for climate is a message and a signal that in today's democracies, politicians cannot ignore. And so I think don't underestimate the power of of (laughs) persuasion and political power that that you carry as as young people. I think that's the biggest source of change. The second thing I think is to actually have independent... Whether they're think tanks or you know universities or places where people can call out what they see is happening and who are not advocates in a sense of you know pushing a particular uh, line without the evidence. so I think you know evidence is worth a lot, and I really do believe that one of the most disturbing things recently is how in few societies, people have started to talk about evidence as being less important, you know, it's sort of like. Uh, and actually, the only thing we have in life on which to make good decisions is evidence. Bad or good, you know, sometimes it's complete, sometimes it's incomplete. But we, we, and I think this is our responsibility, the Center for Global Development and other places like that, have a responsibility to produce the evidence and speak truth to power. And And, of course, you know, it's not always it's easier to say than to do because uh, we all are part of the same society but i do feel that in, that independent agencies have a role and the third thing i think is that you know shareholders of the institutions essentially is the world we have i mean that that so i you know i agree with you i um but we have to find ways to get them to engage and think differently. And, and actually, the other thing we have to recognize in that regard is that there's a whole new set of shareholders that are coming up. So the world is changing, the, the, the emerging markets now account between them for two-thirds of the world, not one-third, which was the case you know, a generation ago. And that community wants to have a say. So I, you know, as I say, if you go to India now, or you go to China, go to the big cities. So China, the big cities, impossible to breathe in a few years ago, right? People were really struggling. And I think the message got through, and the Chinese government has acted. And now I see India has some of the most polluted cities in the world. I think eight of the top ten most polluted cities are in India. The other two are in Pakistan. And so you, if you watch the Twitter feed between these two countries, which have, I was going to say, a sort of healthy competition, but actually may not be all that healthy. Uh, but one of the things is sort of, you know, people in, in Lahore are putting out a daily Twitter feed complaining about the fact that their index is 148 or 250 or whatever it is, you know, some number that means they should all really not be able to breathe at all. and. But then footnoting it by saying, but it's higher in Delhi. As if somehow this makes it breathable, you know. That, that. So, so I think there is this, but that's what's putting pressure on their governments to act on, on something that will actually begin to have a global impact. Because frankly, climate change is going to be driven, outcomes are going to be driven by largely what happens in 20 big global economies. That's what's going to be the primary determinant. So at this stage, you know, honestly, what happens in terms of mitigation projects in some small country, you know, the smallest country is Kiribati, 9,000 people, is completely inconsequential in terms of thinking about climate change outcomes. And, and that's one of the things that I, I think the point you made, is very important that we don't start mechanically now a, applying these targets so that every country program has to have an element of mitigation. Because in some cases, it's the most useless thing you could be doing. You know, for the same amount of effort, you could have a 20 times larger impact on climate by focusing yourself in a place where, uh, which is going to have much bigger uh, global consequence.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned also all the efforts that are um, um, meant to gear us up for the Africa discussions in the future. When you look at Africa, you see that, yes, we may be giving a little uh, ODA or soft loans to Africa, but at the same time, we are inflicting costs on many poor countries. You know, be it through... Not reducing our perverse subsidies in the agricultural area, be it through a conflict and I looked at the financing of um, peacekeeping operations and humanitarian appeals, all of them, except for two Afghanistan and Yemen a little bit, are underfunded. you know the money is being called for, but at thirty percent fifty percent are only financed so you you how can you achieve development? when at the same time there is a problem that uh, uh, peacekeeping is not properly resourced, humanitarian assistance is not resourced, uh, and it will take a long time before the effects of climate change mitigation can be felt. So there will be droughts, there will be uh, floods. So um, actually we are facing a higher bill than we tend to put on the table for the SDGs, And where does it come from when we, even in Germany, think about in terms of black zeros and not investing? What uh, should we give clearer messages to uh, the uh, industrial countries uh, to be so foresighted and self-interested and change their fiscal policies and their thinking about development?
4: I think you can make a case. I mean, I don't do industrial country macro, but you can make a case without going to too much uh, complication as to why it might make sense when interest rates are zero or below and when there's a lot of things you could do that it makes sense for countries that can afford to use the fiscal space to use it. I mean, when would you use it? You know, if not now, when? So e- even before you get into development financing, I think you can make that that argument and you know countries find their own balance. Some countries are more conservative than others, but but I think today is the time to invest in infrastructure. We just look around the world and say we can borrow for 50 years at zero percent probably, and, and you know, why why are we not doing good info? So I mean the, so I think you could make that case. Now if it comes to I think the point you've just made on development, a very important one is that so two points actually I would say. One is uh the, the need to think holistically. And I think it's, you know, it's really quite extraordinary if you think about how we think about development, how we think about peacekeeping, how we think about humanitarian assistance. We have different agencies. The agencies are organized by line of business that no longer reflect the nature of the problems we are trying to solve. The average refugee if they've been out of their country more than five years, the average time they will spend as a refugee is 21 years globally. It's just a reality today, right? And the average otherwise, if you take all refugees, is 12 years. So, But our humanitarian system was designed to treat refugees as if they were there for a short period. If you're there for a short period, the thing you need to do is to give them housing, give them shelter, give them water, give them security. That's what humanitarian agencies do fantastically. But if you're going to be there for 12 years or 21, and for each of those years you've given them just that, children are born, people grow up, they live there their whole life, all they're getting is water, shelter, and security. That's, that's crazy. So we should be thinking of them as a development issue, not as a humanitarian issue. But the humanitarian agencies aren't equipped to do that, and the development people say, well, you know, we're not equipped to deal with refugees. That's not our job. So, of course, now I'm exaggerating. Over the last few years, people have recognized all this. So the humanitarian and the and the development agencies are working together to be able to do that. But they have different cultures. They report to different people. Their funding models are different. The humanitarian agencies are starved of cash. The development agencies have more money. So, and then the army has even more money. You know I used to be in Difid when we were going through the Afghan war, and I mean you could have these long discussions in Difid about whether and how to place a school and what would be the design of it. In the meantime, the military, at some quite junior level would have come and built four schools and, and moved on because they had backs full of money that they could actually use for what were called I, I can't remember the exact terminology, but it was some projects to win hearts and minds. So you know you could basically come in, build a school, move on to the next school. Now, some of those schools were built in ways that really weren't very useful because military is not good about doing education projects. But DFID, where I was, in practice was use, not useful either because we were so busy having internal discussions about you know, whether or not we'd done the impact analysis and the curriculum was gonna be right. So I think we just need all sides to change their behavior. And even more so, When you bring in the peacekeeping types, right, the peacekeeping community is something about which we have no connection as a development community. We don't, and even today, the development community, we are also, I mean, I'm from the development community, right, so I take full responsibility for this. We are also much more comfortable talking to people like ourselves, who share our worldview, who work within our constraints, rather than reaching out and then going to talk to somebody who will challenge us. So, I mean, if I... if Just to take that hypothetical example, if we had gone and talked to the military person about all these issues we needed to resolve before building the school, I think they would have said, you're crazy, you know? I mean, we need the school. In the next six months or six weeks, we're going to put a school up. So have you got useful advice to give us now or not? And if you don't, get out of the way. And And I think that would have... That's what did force us to think about how to act. But I think we need to do more, more of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, we will shortly open up the, uh, the question and answer uh, session for the plenary before um, so sharpen your words and come up with your soundbite questions. Um, one last question uh, from my side. If we were to dream for a minute about MDB reform, reform of the multilateral development banks. Would you imagine the World Bank probably becoming the uh, institution for dealing with the global challenges? And the uh, more regional banks focusing on more country-level assistance together with the World Bank when it comes to uh, addressing global challenges? And while you think about your answer... Uh, one last remark. I will take uh, three or four questions uh, at a time so that we get all of you in because I'm sure the arms will fly up you know, after we have heard uh, your response. So, so quick
4: quick response to that because I don't want to you know, have time with the other questions. Is that certainly I would see the World Bank as having a much more structured role in global public goods. So at the moment, global public, actually the World Bank does quite a lot of global public goods financing, but it does it as a side business. And I, want, I would want it to be in there. And the other thing that I would want to see is the World Bank playing a much bigger role as a setter of norms and standards that all the development financing agencies could then collectively follow. It's kind of crazy. You know, if you apply to college in the United States, I recently had gone through this, so um, not for myself. But, <laughs> but, but if, you, if you go through this process, uh, there's a thing called a common application form. And you fill out a common application form. If you're a private sector person who wants to co-finance a project with one of the MDPs, you have to fill out a separate form with each, each one because they can't agree on a common application form. And you know, there's just no reason for
0: it. So, then uh, we have the first four, the gentleman here in the first row. Uh, uh, then uh, I saw Helmut Reisen, I saw Margaret Talvez, I saw Omar, and uh, um, so I take the next ones now. Well, you? Uh, but the first, the four first.
1: My name is Zimmermann. I'm a journalist. Bonus, you get four questions off of me right off the top. First of all, is it true that more money flows out of developing countries as stolen money through graft by high officials than is invested through ODA? Is that true or not? If it's true, and if there's a lot of um, money that could be repatriated if it were found, why aren't our secret agencies, our NSAs, our Bundesnachrichtendienst, and so on, helping the police do that, right? Um, the, uh, the next question is, if there are countries that are irretrievably corrupt and incompetent, the leaderships, um, should we, instead of lending, making sovereign loans to those countries, should we be giving money to international agencies to directly finance and carry out the work in those countries? Like, just have them, you know, have some cutoff of corruption beyond which they get nothing, but we'll do the work, uh, another question is, you mentioned military, and they often have more money. They're often, in many African countries, for example, the military is sometimes the most competent institution. Should the militaries in Africa be encouraged to set up their equivalents of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and build major infrastructure projects? And could the Europeans build a European Corps of Engineers and help them with technical assistance and teaching them civil-military cooperation skills? Um, yeah, I think that's it. No, I, I
4: think you, you, okay, you, no, you Can you. I take the others? Yeah, yeah, of course, of yeah. course. So it's uh, four people at a time rather than four questions.
1: <laughs>
5: I didn't want to raise a question, because I think the students should ask the yeah. questions. Yeah. But uh, since you asked me, and Inge is a close friend, the quick. Um, quick question is, would you downstream down the IFC at the World Bank? because I have discovered that the IFC uh, sells a lot of snake oil, um, as did, by the way, the Center for Global Development before you arrived. Uh, uh, Trillions to billions is still on your website, and uh, there was a lot of work by Moss and others uh, that claimed poverty would be reduced and private funding would solve the problems. Now, you have a very realistic tone, And um, therefore, I'm specifically interested in your specific proposals, how to improve the situation in African low-income countries. We dealt with this, and we will present this on Monday at the Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, with the Compact with Africa. And again, there is a lot of snake oil, and the results are very disappointing.
0: So note the date. (laughs) <laughs> oh. Margaret a quick question you will I be in the second hand, round the floor, I have a very what went wrong with the private sector what went sorry I didn't ask but it's okay I'll take the floor for two seconds what went wrong with the private sector why don't we get more private sector into this particularly since there's so much talk the last two three years about sustainability investment and now Omar?
6: Thanks, Mr. Emmett, for your talk. Uh, I'm a Master of Public Policy student here at Hertie. Uh, I just had two quick questions. You mentioned that a lot of the ODA is going to higher middle-income countries, but uh, a lot of this money, as we know, is tied to geopolitical uh, concerns. Some of the countries are in uh, ex-Soviet states, which require certain funding for preventing democratic backslide. Um, so do you, would you say that that is one reason why such funding would con, should continue? Of course, they are higher, there would be concerns or requirements higher on this, you can say, development Maslow's hierarchy, which would require certain funding. And the second question is that, it, you did mention this a little bit as well, there seems to be a lack of trust in a lot of these institutions, especially the Bretton Woods institutions, because of inefficiencies in those institutions. You've worked in them. Uh, the IMF, the UN agency specifically? There were studies done that uh, for every dollar spent uh, more than 60 cents, depending on the agencies, actually go back into those countries and are not spent uh, domestically due to bloated bureaucracies. Do you think that the reforms are needed, new organizations are needed? How can that be addressed with these white elephants? Thank you. Okay,
0: All right. first round.
4: So there's a mindset behind some of these. <laughs> uh, so I kind of say, look, here's my quick answer. First, just to take them in the order in which they came. So more money flowing out of these countries, corrupt politicians. Why we focus on getting it back, you know, rather than. So I think first, first, I don't, I don't know exact number of amount of money flowing out of these countries, but you know, out of some countries, significant amounts of money flow out. Not necessarily out of all countries. Uh, and I think there have been attempts to try and get them back. There's a Stars program. If you look up under the website, just under Stars program, which was I think stolen assets recovery program was a sort of basic thing. It was tant- and it did succeed in getting some money back. Bank secrecy has not been super helpful in in facilitating that. So I think there is you know you can keep pushing on it. Now recently there's been a lot more effort. Panama Papers have probably done more to to uh, bring about a change in, in within countries as a demand for some of those funds to come back. I would say there's a bigger question on money flowing out. If you think about money flowing out, not as necessarily by corrupt politicians, but individuals who live in countries, everybody, they're sending money out when the rest of the world is trying to send money in. The question, well, you know, why, why are we doing this? Why aren't? And the answer is actually that's a signal that there's something wrong with the environment for investment and for how secure people feel with their holding their money there. And it's very hard to imagine that the rest of the private sector, the world's private sector, will be investing in countries where the nationals don't feel good about investing. So I think that's why, personally, I've always felt that this focus on sort of encouraging FDI rather than encouraging investment is a little bit misguided. Your second thing was sort of, what about countries that are irretrievably corrupt? You know, Shouldn't we just kind of work around government? So there's, I mean, we can have a long conversation about this. And, but I would say, in practice, in many countries, many donor agencies do work with agencies. The USAID, for example, works a lot with contractors who do delivery themselves. And other agencies do as well. The downside with this idea of let's just bypass the government and go and deliver this stuff and actually let's train the army, so it's a little bit the same, is that ultimately you can't do development for other countries. Development will happen when countries themselves are able to take responsibility for projects, et cetera. So it's always this balance between getting the project done and building the capacity, to actually be able to do more projects and, and take responsibility for them. There is there are many examples of projects that have been done by people who came in from outside, put in a project, and then no ownership, no maintenance and nothing happened. Just
1: for clarity, I actually was thinking
4: international agency comes in, does the project but with local staff, it's just like they manage it. No, sure, but once they leave so I, I, no, I agree with that. But you're saying they just they stay with it and, and kinda of run it. And Yes, yeah, so at such time as the government
1: stopped being so corrupt. Yeah, yeah. And, and
4: and and I think the question is that the structure of international agencies is one that works with sovereign government. So I think you know where you see that problem most acutely is in fragile states. So if you're a fragile state, a conflict state, finding that balance of who who takes you know, just to get the job done, I think, uh, is is one that's uh, some people have tried still do in many countries it does happen, but it's not trouble free what i'm saying is you know it's not something that doesn't raise its own issue. I think the idea of training the military to be to do some of these projects i mean in some countries, the military is not just competent but beneficent in other countries, you know particularly in Africa, you would argue that the military is often as corrupt as as anything else, and, and as anybody else, and also it's not obvious that empowering them is helping to deal with improving the democratic and civilian accountability process in those countries. So it takes you very quickly into territory that is trying to shape the political life of those countries. So, that, so I think that's the only thing I'd worry about. Then the IFC point, you know, and actually there's a. So, I, I, look, I think IFC, IFC in my view, actually, uh, is trying to do a, a very good, uh, under Philippe, I think the IFC is doing a very good job of trying to recognize that its value added comes from helping to create the market for private investment rather than to be another private investor. Because at the end of the day, you know, honestly, you take all of these DFC DFIs up, uh, they're going to be worth a second decimal point in the global scheme. The numbers will never be meaningful. The thing that will be meaningful is how their contribution helps shape the framework. And that's why, you know, I think the IFC's focus on building markets is the right one. I also think, just to be clear, and this is a bit the answer to Margaret's question also, is that I... I think that the future development agenda does need to include a large contribution by the private sector. I don't want to come across as meaning I don't think it's worth doing. I'm just trying to be realistic about what we think we can get done in the time frame. So let's not pretend they're going to solve the problem, but let's not give up on them either. And so why aren't they doing it? And that's one of the things that we at the center have been doing a lot is convening both the private sector and the official agencies should try and discover why is it that they're unable to get projects together. And the problems are there's not often a supply of good projects. You know, is that the problem is that you have to focus on building a project pipeline. The agencies have not been used to doing that for other people, so they have to change their business model. Private sector is not very good or not very interested in building the project pipeline. They're the people who have the money just want to write the check. They Also, the other problem is that in many cases, um, the kinds of risk mitigation that they want and the returns that they want actually make it not very sensible to use older money for that. You know, so I think that's so. There's, I think, there's a set of issues which is partly just time and partly the context. And then I think the last thing I would say is sort of Omar's question of, you know, look, my my takeover is that all the analyses that have been done of the MDBs is that the multilateral system, on most things, turns out to be more efficient than bilateral system, more effective, better delivery. So one of the reasons why we are more aware of their problems because we scrutinize them a lot more. And they're more transparent, actually. So I would say the multilateral development banks are, by and large, probably the most efficient system delivery mechanisms we have right now doesn't mean we don't have problems, doesn't mean we don't need, need to fix them. But I would say, you know, we should fix them because we want them to be even better, not because we think they're a problem case, you know, and we want them to be smaller, if you see what I mean.
0: Um, I think that was it, wasn't
4: it? Yes, sorry.
0: So thanks very much for this first one. I have already two for the next one. So here's a third one, fourth one. I have you, a fifth one, maybe? Just a minute, this gentleman, uh, colleague, huh? doesn't matter. Okay, so we start here. And uh, there's the fifth one. Good.
7: Okay, thank you very much. Um, it was uh, an insightful presentation. Uh, my name is Osita, an MIA student. Um, I was a little surprised that your key recommendation is for um, development to go back to ODA, which has clearly not worked over this, the, the, the years or... Uh, From studies that have been done, does it show that countries, ODA-dependent countries, moved significantly in terms of development? If not, why should we go back? You advocate for effectiveness this time. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the past, I I believe these countries and the development agencies knew that effectiveness was important. They knew all the uh, effectiveness measures. It's about implementation. What has changed now if they couldn't implement those effectiveness measures before? Mm. What has changed
5: now?
0: Thanks very much. The second one over
5: there. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm a uh, MIA student here as well. Um, Slightly related to the last question. um, So as you said, whilst the kind of trend has been to look away from ODA for the last couple of years, um, donor countries have continued lobbying um, for for the ODA rules to be changed. Um, to make them more lenient for their own kind of purposes. Is the time now, given what the question you just asked, to tighten those rules up? Like, are they fit for purpose anymore? Should we be... For if two-thirds of ODA isn't going to the least developed countries and isn't going on the most important things, uh, is it time to change the rules?
0: Okay. In the last row here, yeah? This hand is the right one. Yeah.
1: There was a lady. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Sangeed. I'm a MPP student here as well. My question is about China, and and in part, that isn't it a problem of your own making, where they've like a lot of these. uh, Well, I think (laughs) some of the IMF and the other multinational multilateral organizations, where they've been kept at arm's length for a while, into being included in uh, in in the process uh, for those, and now that they've basically replicated the model, I think in 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 their own way, a better way, where they're just more abusive, they just take over ports, build parliaments, all of that, Uh, but now that they're finally matching up in funding, do you think there is a possibility to integrate them with the multilateral organizations to actually get them out of these dead traps and
0: things like that? Okay, you can pass the mic on to, yeah, and then you will be next.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm Annika, also an MPP student here at Herdy, and my question goes pretty much to the same direction as Sangeet's question about the depth problem. And as you mentioned that the old systems do not work, not only if we can integrate the, the current adapters like China or the private sector um, to the current systems, but if, is there maybe a need to build up completely new systems and are there any ideas on, on this direction?
0: Thank you. Yeah, now we have the last uh, intervention there. And I must say my gender balance doesn't look good. So for the next round, I would like to come to a (laughs) 50-50 composition. So um, I encourage our um, female friends and colleagues. Now you. Oh, hi. Uh,
7: So my name is Claudia. I work for a risk advisory firm. I would like to, if you could share some thoughts about the apparent um, tension between the need for financial institutions and donor states to kind of invest or fund more programs, development programs in particular countries, and the reputational risk exposure for them, their reputational risk exposure, or even sanctions risk in particular situations, um, how would you conciliate the two, if it makes any sense? Mm.
4: So I think the look, the first two are sort of related points about ODA, right? So Which is, you know, we didn't really do so well when we relied a lot on ODA and why are we going to do better now? I think that's a perfectly legitimate uh, question. I guess my point is that you need to turn that a bit on its head and say what, what the results on private financing and DRM are showing is that it turns out to be unrealistic to expect our goals to be met by large increases from them. And therefore, it turns out that, that ODA is actually quite a precious resource that we need to use well, because it can do things in situations where neither private financing nor D- DRM is available, but it will only do it if we do it well. And what I find quite interesting is that the discussion about ODA is, is a little bit schizophrenic. So a lot of people who work in development spend a fair amount of time sort of running it down as being, you know, not very useful, very small, with 150 billion, you know. But then everybody has a plan for how they want a the share of it. You know, so whichever community you meet actually wants a bit of that order. Because they say it's really valuable for us, but but then in a separate conversation they'll tell you how it's all useless. and so. I think it is both, so so the answer is actually is both. It can be completely useless if we don't use it well, and I think, so why did, why did we not do, use it well? Partly it was geopolitics. So we gave it into country situations where we weren't at all confident that it was going to do any good, but we thought somehow this was going to be helping our relationship in some way. Partly it was because we had these sort of somewhat misguided notions at one time about how development worked, and we just learned over time that things that we know better now. uh, And there's no guarantee that if we use it badly in the future, we're not going to get any better results. So so my point is we are not using it so well now. We have the 150 billion. I just want it to be used better by reallocating it to places where it's going to have a better impact and on things that will do results. Now the, the rules discussion is part of that. Because, you know, one of the reasons why people are so keen to change the rules is because it enables us to, you know, I think there was a beer advertisement at some point. There's a Heineken refreshes the parts that other beers cannot reach or something, you know. So it was now the, the changing of the rules is all about let's get order to finance the things that, you know, other funding isn't available for. So you've only got all these refugees in country. Let's change the rules and sort of get older to to finance it. But, you know, you can spread the same dollar in. So many different ways, but you can't, you know, keep spending it over and over again. So, so I think that's part of it. Similarly, I do worry that in the the world, if you like, is moving towards a great power rivalry. Right? I mean, the the golden age of development, in a way, was the sort of fall of the Berlin Wall and and end of the Cold War and and sort of between then and and until about five seven years ago, I think there was a period when People sort of said to the development community, "Use the money in the ways that you think will get the best results." We don't really have much interest in this money for any, anymore. We don't want it for fighting the Cold War. We don't want it for you know because we're short of money. You know we're all doing reasonably well as countries with a great moderation. You know, why don't you guys going to do the best you can? And the development folk, including me, all rushed off and thought, oh, "You know this was great." And now actually we suddenly find that people say, "No, no, no! Hang on, hang on! Actually, I need." First of all, I've got more views about who I give this money to than some set of rules you're going to come up with about aid effectiveness. Secondly, I'll actually tell you what I want to do with it because I have other purposes. I want to use it for refugees, I want to use it for other purposes. So I do worry that in a great power rivalry world, development will be more challenged from it. Uh, Then, this China issue that you said, you know, I think, look, I think there are two ways in which the China problem is of. Of the making of the old donors. One is the point you raised, which is that I think the Chinese probably feel that they weren't given enough space that we we keep asking the new donors, not just China, but with the new donors, you need to be part of our rules and our clubs. Right. So we have set a set of rules, look, we know how to do these things, come and join us. And actually, what they're saying is, no, actually, we're not sure that you know how to do these things. Because you know, frankly, the results are not that terrific. We have a set of views about how we should do these things. So, if you want to have a set of new rules by which we all operate, let's have a talk about the rules. And we're less willing to talk about the rules. We're more willing to say, "Come and join our club," and you know, you really should be because you're a big donor now, and you can come and sit at our, you know, table. And not so sure. So, I think we need to be willing to have that conversation. But the other reason is that I think also that for a lot of these countries, the multilateral institutions in Africa working in Africa's said you don't really meet our criteria, or we don't have the funding. We've run out of what we can do for you. We have country limits and norms, and, you know, very prudent. Maybe too prudent, but very prudent. And so they went off and said, the Chinese, and, and for that matter, the commercial banks come along. Ghana start borrowing at 7 8% from the commercial market. And then now we're saying, well, that's, how can you be borrowing at 7%? You know, maybe the... MDBs could have been lending a little bit more, or two or three, and had more of a discussion about it. So I think you know we were a little bit, sometimes, too cautious without thinking through what the consequences could be. Now, I think the um, the last point um, that Claudio, you raised uh, was, and Annika, I think this was your point also about building up the new system. And Claudio, your point about, you know, sort of, um, is there sort of reputational risk? Well, look, I, I don't know. I think you're thinking of some specific countries, when you think of sort of sanctions and things. And, and I think you know there are special situations in which no multilateral institution or bilaterals will engage. And, but in a more general sense, look, my problem is not that they don't that we're taking too much risk. My problem is I don't think that these institutions take enough risk. I mean, the only reason we have them is to do things that are actually going to be risky. And one of our big failures as shareholders is that we tell the management of these institutions when we have general conversation, we want you to go into difficult environments, take risks, do private sector in fragile states, make it, you know, that's what you're here for. And then the first time they do a project that doesn't work, we're like, what's going on with you guys? Aren't you serious? Why did, you, why did this fail? Couldn't you see this happening? Uh, You know, and then we're like zero risk tolerance amongst us as shareholders when things go wrong. So we need to sort of, you know, be clear about what we want from these institutions. Do we really want them, if you want them to just mimic Goldman Sachs or Deutsche Bank, why bother to put public money in them, right? I mean, we want them to do things that the private sector is not able to do, and that is by definition going to be more risky. If you have no failures, you're not doing your job. If you do the same thing twice, it's a problem.
0: But the question is, who is we? <laughs>
2: <There
0: it goes. laughs> All of us. So where's the last round of hands? Okay, uh, one there, a few more, second one there. One more. Okay, three. Ah, four. Good, great. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, evening. My question question's about so you know, you be enabled, so? my name is Charu i'm a student at Hurti. okay um, my question's about the case of countries like
4: india which have kind of leapfrogged the normal development paradigm and moved to a service sector focused growth yep. Yep. how do you think that is affected in terms of oda flows in this case instead of real flows we're looking at something more financial and they are and they do have the potential to kind of compete with china and other uh, players in the game
0: thanks very much Where was the second one I oh, think you. Um, I'm Linnea Kreb. I'm former student MPP currently in the World Bank unit at BNZ, so <laughs> you were talking a lot about our work. Um, my question is, what concretely do you want us to do? We have the capital increase agreed for the IBRD, and sort of how concretely can we push the bank to do more of what you're saying we should do while at the same time Living in a political reality where the focus is on numerical values, how do we shift the
2: conversation practically? Yeah,
0: thanks very much. Now, here with the red stretches.
2: Hello, I'm Eleanor. Um, thank you for the talk. I'm also an MIA student here, and I'm a youth ambassador for the One Campaign, which you might have heard of. Um, I thought about this question because you were talking about um, holding politicians into account. Uh, especially with young people. Um, Last year, in the run-up to the European elections with the one campaign, we uh, launched a big campaign on um, ODA, um, because most European countries pledge to uh, spend 0.7% of the budget on ODA, uh, but only three or four countries uh, in the EU have Done so now. Um, so me and, and other one of
4: them might the EU Exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah. um, so me and other youth ambassadors uh, met a few politicians uh, in the EU and mostly MEPs. Um, and during these meetings, uh, we're trying to advocate for uh, sorry um, for them to really push their countries to spend more on DA, but also think about the effectiveness of ODA, which is also an issue. Um, we wanted them. Um, for example, to focus more on uh, women education um, and more partnership with Africa. Um, And I guess my question is, during these meetings, I was under the impression that most politicians had kind of given up on ODA. Um, Most of them, for example, would say yes, it's not effective or we need to tackle maybe the unfair rules of international trade, uh, maybe specifically in the agricultural uh, sector. Um, And most of them were moving away from ODA spending towards Mm. this. And whilst I can understand these arguments, I think all of this goes hand in hand. But in a way, time is also running up in terms of meeting the SDGs. Um, And there's also an issue of the multiplicity of actors, because some actors might decide um, how much might be spending, and others will decide how we'll spend on these projects. So I guess my question is, what advice would would you have uh, to me and other young ambassadors who are trying to meet politicians and trying to frame this discussion, which is really complex, and really make them understand that we need to invest more, but also we also need to to change rules.
0: And now the last one here in the front row.
1: Good evening. My name is Natasha. And you just mentioned uh, something about being more risk tolerant. My question is, at what level do we become risk intolerant? Because in in developing countries, we have certain policy pathways that are locked in. For example, the clean up of rivers, the Yamuna projects. So we realize that the funding has been there, but has not been adequately utilized, it's not been efficient, and it's just been a drain to the public funds. But at the same time, our monitoring and our um, evaluation agencies have no legal authority to actually hold these uh, workers accountable so even with the voting structure in place the states have still retained the um, politicians who were initially in that so the voting hasn't changed anything so as young policy analysts and people who want to improve this field what can we do Okay,
4: so since this is sort of la- the uh, last round, let me um, say a couple of things to this. First, I think the point that you were saying uh, under the first point about uh, service sector India, different model. I think look, I mean, India is going to be a big player in the global development field. It's not yet in the doing the same kind of engagement that, that China is as a development player but as a global economy, it's becoming large. Service sector has clearly been a big part of the, of the growth in exports in India, as you know well. But, it, but it's not clear how big a role it has played in, in job creation. So, you know, there, there's a few tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, few million jobs that are created, that are sort of high, high productivity, high-impact service jobs. But the vast majority, the still we talk about jobless growth in India. And I think that's a problem that actually goes to what is the future model of development. So let me use this question to leave with you a, a, a topic that I think you need to think about going forward if you're interested in development, which is really... In light of technology and automation that's been happening, which is going to impact the light manufacturing business, which is what most developing countries had used as a stepping stone from agriculture. You bring people into light manufacturing. Light manufacturing, they earn more. Incomes go up. That sort of gives you up the ladder. If light manufacturing is going to be automated away, This is separate, I mean, we can have a whole conversation around automation, but if it's going to be separated away, where will the new jobs come from? How will economies grow? And I think this is an open question, by the way. So I think this is really a topic for future work as well. Second, how can you make the world back better? You've already agreed the capital increase, you know. I think my, my things, first of all, you've got a fantastic ED. You know, Jürgen Zatler is a very competent man. I'm sure he's doing all the right things that can be done. But I would say you really need to build coalitions as, as shareholders, you know, and, and actually it is on the day-to-day that you have to engage the ownership and responsible oversight as a board uh, of, as, of shareholders. And I think you also have at the capital level to have the kind of engagement that backs up the people in in these institutions, and the the capital increases are just. I don't see this as a sort of periodic contract. You know, you could do. You say nice things to us, and promise nice things, and we'll give you a capital increase, and we'll kind of leave you alone, and then we'll come back in X number of years. You know, so I think we can have an in in between ongoing engagement as well. And not just with the World Bank, by the way, because they're the largest, they're the ones we always use as an example. And I don't want people to think that that's the only international agency, because in many ways, World Bank does a very nice job, you know, so there are other international agencies as well, uh, at which point Helmut rises and, and gets up and decides yeah. to leave. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, But <laughs> I know, no, I'm kidding. But I think the point is actually that they're doing a good job, but but they're also other international institutions where we need to be engaged in the same way. And for example, I would say Africa. Africa, this is my other point I want to leave you with, is Africa is where for the next 20 years, many of the challenges and opportunities for development are going to play out. If you're interested in development, you have to be interested in how to support Africa over the next 20 years. And there are many, many opportunities. It's the only part of the world that is going to have more young people than it does today. 800 million young people are going to come onto the labor market in Africa over the next 25 years. Africa's population is going to go up by a billion and then go up by a billion again by the end of the century. There are four out of every 10 people in the world is going to be in Africa. So what happens in Africa is important not just for Africa, it is important for all of us, particularly for Europe. Europe's future and Africa's future are intertwined in ways that we do not yet appreciate. Therefore, it is entirely in our self-interest, here in Europe, and I speak as sort of adopted European, that it is in our interest in Europe to ensure that we have a vibrant and prosperous Partnership with uh, you know with a vibrant prosperous Africa so anything we can and then this brings me to my final point which is really the last the answer to your question uh, well actually the one about the one campaign I don't want to say about the one campaign the point about the one campaign you see you said well why the, you know the uh, politicians kind of given up on odor and And I think, you know, we in Oda have not made a very good case for ourselves. We in development don't make a very good case for ourselves. I think if there's one thing we don't do well at, it's actually to explain to ordinary people why what development cooperation does is a good thing. Because we like, you know, we talk amongst ourselves, and we sort of start from the same premise. So we convince each other of our righteousness. But you know, we're not so good at convincing others. And I think we really need to listen as to why they think that, you know, and then kind of talk to them about it. And sometimes it actually means changing what we do, you know, not just explaining but doing things differently and being willing to accept that we need to do things differently. And and, and the final thing I was going to say is, look, you know, what you said is very important in the following sense. If there's one lesson that I picked up from working in international institutions for many, many years, is that it's a progressively more humility about how much outsiders can do to influence outcomes in countries. You know, in the end, the pace of development, the pace of change, the progress of societies is determined largely by factors within those societies. And it is a humbling journey to recognize that while you can be useful in bringing the experience of the rest of the world, in supporting people who want to make change in countries at the right moment with the right instrument, that money is quite a useful tool in facilitating your entry and having that conversation that winning the trust of people is going to be essential if you're going to be a useful contributor to them. That actually starting from listening to their solutions rather than arriving with your own is probably not a bad place. Uh, I think, but all of this said, you have to recognize that your contribution if you work in development is to assist and aid at the margin. But what happens in societies is going to be driven in large part them. And that's the way it should be. So the problems that you raise, honestly, I gave you, remember I gave you the example at the beginning of the, the, the amount of effort the international community had sent trying to raise taxes in Pakistan? That didn't work. Because at the end of the day, it is the it is the country that has to make. And I can give you 15 examples, you know, personal ones, where I feel it really did work. But it worked because we were providing the right external input to an internally driven process where they actually wanted to achieve the things and where the external input helped them to go that extra mile or or make that better decision because they were informed by knowledge that came from the experience of the rest of the world. So I, I don't want this to come across as being like, don't bother. Actually, I think we should be as focused on it as we can, but to do it recognizing that we are you know, assisting in a society that has to drive its own future.
0: Yeah. Masoud, thank you very much for all these um, thoughts, perspectives, ideas that you have shared with us. If I could leave one last idea, I think what the discussion has shown is that we actually lack something that could be called global public policy or global public economics, you know, because it's one thing to be uh, concerned about Africa, but if we continue being concerned about Africa in an old-fashioned 20th-century way, we will make little uh, progress. So uh, there is no country, at the country level, we don't mix up public policy for public goods with uh, the welfare system and so. So in order not to make you miss your train at 8.30... I just want uh, to suggest that maybe the International Relations Club, or whatever the exact name is, can have a follow-up meeting on what would be a global public policy, so that we know when we cooperate with the outside world in our self-interest, and when do we do it, because we are concerned about equity and equality. That's really uh, lacking, and we are a school of public policy. So let's be the first to really drive forward the thinking about global public economics. Thank you very much. It was very enlightening. And now a nice...
2: Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdi-school.org.